This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. When we think of dream teams, sports usually pops to mind first for many people. Currently, the NBA champion Golden State Warriors uh, certainly fit the bill, or the actual dream team of NBA stars that played in the 1992 Summer Olympics. But the concept of a dream team can occur in numerous business sectors as well. In fact, many companies want to assemble people that can perform at their best, bring the level of business up, and also get along with coworkers. Shane Snow is a science and business journalist who's also co-founder of Contently, which is rated as one of the best places to work by cranes and ad age. Shane looks deeper as to the reasons why and how dream teams succeed in his new book, Dream Teams, Working Together Without Falling Apart. And it's a pleasure having Shane on the show right now. Shane, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. So in your mind, what makes a great team right now? So we talk about teamwork uh, in in lots of different ways, but I think a dream team, as I define it, is a team that actually defies the odds and does what most teams don't do, which is adds up to more than the sum of its parts. We say things like synergy. We say things like two heads are better than one. But most of the time, teamwork is hard. Most of the time, a group of people is only as smart as the smartest person in the group. But once in a while a group manage that manages to add up to more and that can happen in sports like you said or in business and there's uh there's subtle psychology and neuroscience behind what makes a difference. But seemingly more and more companies, and we've talked about it several times on this show, they are looking to build teams. They they don't necessarily want to rely on one person doing an entire project uh, and maybe mistakes being made. They want to bring together people. They want to have that great culture in the office. So at, at least looking at it from the outside, businesses want this more so now, I think, than than maybe in a long time. That's part of what I wanted to study in this odyssey that became this book is if we can look in history at teams that managed to do the impossible or the incredible or defeat the odds, what do they have in common from sort of an underlying framework perspective? And then what does new research tell us about human relationships and group dynamics so that we can build sort of a template for the, or a framework for how we can actually do what you're talking about, design a team manage a team, create a team environment where people can do that. And I've been using this analogy since the book uh, of a cake. That The very first thing is uh, when you're baking a cake, you don't want to assemble all the ingredients and for those to all be five different types of flour. You're not okay. going to make something better than flour if that's all you do. And yet so often the first step we do in building a team is we get people who are alike who have great personality fit, who uh, think similarly, and we get excited about that. And there's all sorts of you know psychological reasons why that makes our brains happy to work with people like us. But that's the first step is realizing that cake is not made from similar ingredients, and uh, and and there's more to a uh, you know a dream team is not going to happen with just an army of. You know, red coats marching in line the same way. Right. But that's when the hard parts start. Well, and, and you talk about the fact that, that, that you know, when you have a, a great team, it's not like the people have to get along kumbaya, you know, each and every day, 24-7, 365. You actually do want 
differing opinions, differing mindsets coming together, especially when you're talking about being successful in business, so that you can have that that best thought process coming forward. So business is all about problem solving. And if you're solving novel problems or important problems, you want to give yourself the maximum chance of finding breakthrough solutions to those problems. And so you're exactly right. You minimize your chance of doing that if you uh, put the wrong people together. And in the, you know, in the basketball analogy, any basketball team is going to have players that play different roles. What we've discovered in fairly recent years is one of those roles uh, that often makes a difference between a great team and a dynasty is having players or a player who isn't just getting lots of points, but is putting their hand in the face of the person on the other team and forcing them to their bad side. The person who's doing things that aren't sort of visibly making them look good, right. but that are helping the whole team succeed. And there's little things like that that we don't have a good way of measuring uh, or we haven't had a good way of measuring in, in business teamwork. And we often promote people for being visibly good at their job or, or the best at making sales. And yet, over and over and over again, we look at research and we see that teams with people with great individual statistics don't necessarily uh, get further than other teams. And actually, it's not about getting along. It's about not getting along well that helps a team to turn ideas around and to find solutions that no one could think of. It's actually that friction between your different viewpoints and your different ideas that brings out the potential to see further than anyone can see. We are joined by Shane Snow, who is the author of the book Dream Teams, Working Together Without Falling Apart. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't catch your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. In looking at this, you do take a historic perspective and bring up examples from years gone by, one of which you actually talk about the Wright Brothers. Tell us more. Well, I love the story I uncovered about the Wright Brothers, which, you know, the mythology of how the airplane was invented was, here's these two guys in a shop, and they were underfunded, and there were all these other people with, with much better resources, and, and these two guys invented the airplane and changed the world. They were brothers, and they knew that they had similar perspectives on a lot of things. They grew up together. They knew that if they wanted to solve hard problems together, they would have to stoke the fire of cognitive friction, as I call it. And so they'd be working on a problem and, uh, and trying to find a solution, and they would force themselves to take really hard stances um, and, and actually argue from uh, sometimes real points of view and sometimes sort of contrived points of view. Uh, and they would have these really intense arguments to the point that you know, their shop assistants would worry and the neighbors would worry. And you know, they'd raise their voices, they would yell, and then what they would do is at lunchtime, they would stop and they'd eat their sandwiches or whatever, and then they'd go back to fighting. But Orville would argue Wilbur's side, and Wilbur would argue Orville's side. They had to switch <laughs> sides of the argument. <laughs> okay. And this is their way of helping, you know, they, they wanted to deliberately raise their voices and deliberately get really intense in whatever they were debating because they knew that was going to help them find solutions. Um, but they also knew that at the point where they wanted to strangle each other, they were no longer going to be effective. They had to detach their need to be right. They had to detach yeah. their ego from their ideas. And so this little debate and switch worked. 
for them because they were brothers, they could they could have those fights a little more intensely than I think most people would be comfortable with at work. But the underlying principle is they knew they had to smash different ideas together. They had to play with things that might be crazier, that might be you know uh, offensive to their engineering sensibilities. And my favorite outcome of one of these arguments they had, they were arguing about the propeller one time. You know, how do we design this thing so that it can move this flying machine forward? And the solution they came up with after having days of, of these sort of arguments from different sides was they actually needed two propellers turning in different directions and that that would be the most effective thing, which I think is like the perfect analogy for the kind of team that can help you take off uh, different two, two of you turning in different directions. How much do you think that, that that could benefit, that mindset of of looking at each other's perspective? How much do you think that either is helping or could help business today right now? Because so people, you know, if you're bringing an opinion forward, we, we in many cases, we, we fight tooth and nail to, to make sure that that opinion is the correct one. Oh, yeah. This is a big problem. I think if there's one skill that anyone, that everyone in business could develop that could make all business better, and honestly, communities and politics and everything else, it would be this thing called intellectual humility, which is the ability not only to respect someone's viewpoint when it's different than yours, but to detach your ego from being right and being able to revise your viewpoint when necessary. And that's really hard. And we actually have a problem in business where we don't reward people for admitting they're wrong. We don't reward people for being flexible leaders. We reward people for being right. We reward people for coming up with the right answer on, on their own. And so if that's how you're going to get promoted, that's how you're going to get commissions, then, of course, that's the behavior that we are going to encourage. But the kinds uh, and then a group only becomes as smart as its leader has been put in the position of making decisions. But if we want to make more progress together, we actually need to start flipping that, that the leader needs to be the one to first admit that they're wrong, to first admit that they're fallible, (laughs) to make it safe for everyone to explore ideas and to talk about things and to put forward perspectives that may not work out. And you have to do more than just say it's safe to say any idea. That, that's been proven to not, not work. It starts with the leaders actually showing it and building an environment of trust where people know that if they do something, if they have an idea that's bad or if they lose an argument or a debate or whatever it is, their job is not on the line. Their position is secure because the debates are about moving the gang forward, not about convincing people to your point of view. In what you just kind of laid out uh, in terms of uh, uh, the, the, the bosses taking, uh, taking blame when needed, uh, the way you laid it out, it, it almost made me feel like we were talking about the banking sector here in the United States over the last few years. And more specifically recently, Wells Fargo was some of the things that were going on there. Uh, you know, I, I mean, this culture of, of needing to make profit seemingly does get in the way of having these perfect teams put together at times, does it not? Yeah. And it leads to, you know, we ha- we're having all these conversations now that I think we need to in business about belonging and inclusion and people feeling good at work. And, uh, and a lot of that stems from, you know, areas of injustice and the way that we've skewed hiring in, you know, in many industries toward, you know, people with privilege. And, uh, and so that those are conversations we're having. One of these conversations about uh, inclusion and belonging that I, I think we need to be having a little bit differently 
is this idea of getting with the program is really toxic. This idea of, you know, it's a, it sounds like a good idea, culture fit, because you want to be part of a culture. But actually what we're saying with uh, our actions in a lot of these companies is actually cult fit. You, you know, the difference between, between a cult and a culture is both things have a devotion to something, to a purpose or to a person. And in a cult, you can't deviate from the behaviors that you're being asked to do or for the, from the way you're being asked to think. Right. Whereas in a culture, you're allowed to be yourself. You're allowed to contribute. You know, the culture of the United States is this hodgepodge, or historically was built of this hodgepodge of immigrants from all sorts of places, all adding to, you know, the, uh, the potpourri or whatever analogy you want. A cult is when we start saying you can't think differently. You can't bring something up. You can't dissent. And that's when something like Wells Fargo, people feel afraid to raise their hand and say, I think this might not be right. Or I think, you know, the pursuit of profits in this case is actually getting in the way of our ethics. And people naturally, you know, in our brains is built this need to to survive and to be part of the tribe. And so it's easy for good people to fall into that. But in organizations, we have a really good ability with this culture fit idea to actually encourage people to do unethical behavior or to not speak up when they see it or to not think the way that they would normally think to actually, you know, sort of get down off of their own uh, soapbox and come stand on ours and join, you know, our choir. And that's that's not how we're going to solve the hardest problems that the world faces in the future. Shane Snow is the author of the book Dream Teams, Working Together Without Falling Apart. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, send us a comment via Twitter, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So in terms of uh, of leadership, when you're talking about teams, uh, are, are you finding out that a collaborative approach to leadership is a better is a better situation or having that one person be that leader or is it a little bit of you know depending on the situation that may be presenting itself i yeah i mean i think the answer it depends is probably the most frustrating answer okay it it does depend on the size of the group and it depends on the stakes and it depends on the makeup of the group if you have a large group you're going to need someone to make the call you can't have consensus, right, on everything, and and, you're, and actually consensus would be bad, but you're going to need to be able to explore ideas, explore solutions, get as many diverse inputs as you can that are relevant to your process, and maybe some that are irrelevant so you can explore new intellectual territory. But at some point, someone needs to say, okay, done is better than perfect. We need to move forward, and that's harder to do in a big group. So we need leaders to be decision makers. But I think the kind of leader we need in any case, you know, in a small startup where there's five people, maybe you can all participate equally in every decision. But in a bigger company or in a bigger team or a team within a company, what the leader needs to do is uh, we need to stop thinking of the leader as the hero who is the, you know, first of all, historically leaders have been the big, strong one that can go to battle and be stoic and not change. And that helps us feel safe. That doesn't work in business anymore, but we tend to promote people who look like that. We tend to vote for people who seem like they're strong and stoic, um, and that's not good. The leader needs to be someone who's okay, who's comfortable mm-hmm. leading from the shadows if necessary, who sees their role as unlocking the creativity and the potential between their people, who sees their job is to make the team smarter than they are. 
And that means you don't have to be out in front. You don't have to be the smartest person. And the, the little bit I explored about sports in Dream Teams, this came out really clearly in uh, some research by a, a guy named uh, Sam Walker, where he looked at the greatest sports dynasties in history, and he found that the, the greatest sports dynasties that won over and over and over and over again, they had a pattern where the captain of the team was never the lead scorer. Yeah. But the captain of the team was the one who was willing to sacrifice to set the example, to be vulnerable, to push back, to have the hard conversations, and didn't care about the glory. And so whether the team's big or small, I think that's the role of the leader. And then in bigger teams, the role of the leader also is to say, okay, we need to move forward. And given all the information we've collected, here's the decision that I've made. And that's going to have to be okay just because of the size. Did I read that, that uh, you actually, in terms of doing this book, it kind of opened your mind to this in terms of putting the book together and the numbers of people that you had helping you out in terms of the production of this book? Yeah, I I felt like, you know, on the one hand, I would be a hypocrite if I were to write a book by myself about human collaboration. Yeah. Uh, on the other yeah. hand, I'd seen in my journalism career over the years how the better I collaborated, the more people I collaborated, the more picky I was about who I collaborated with, the better my work. And, uh, you know, I even at one point, a, a critic of mine who had, had uh, torn apart some writing of mine, I at one point engaged him, you know, for help in a, you know, in a, a blog post that was going to be real sensitive. And I, I started this happening and I, and I reached out to him for this book as well. But I became sensitive to the fact that uh, my best friends are not going to be my ideal readers and reviewers of my writing for this book. Uh, they're going to say nice things because they like me. They want We want to be friends. Even if they think they're giving me hard feedback, better feedback is going to come from strangers who I say, mark the parts where you get bored and you don't know me so you can be honest. Or from critics of mine or people who disagree with me. Um, and I actually was pretty deliberate about my sort of editorial team as well. You know, I had an, an editor from Penguin who was a young woman from a very different background than me. I thought that was that was very good and very important. Um, but I also have my agent who is, you know, 70 years old and has written many books himself and has seen it all. Mm-hmm. I had him edit. I also had a stay-at-home dad in Bermuda who's a former lawyer uh, do edits and, and sort of go over drafts of mine. And I tried to pull in different people. To uh, not at, at every stage, not just sort of the, the review, the writing, but at the thinking part. And I had many, many, many conversations at bars with strangers and with random people testing sort of theories and ideas. And I, I really tried to do the scientific method for all of this. And, and I think that it was the hardest thing I've written, but also the most rewarding. And I'd say that the piece of writing that I'm the most proud of, because it's so different than it would have been if I would have gone through my process that I went through with my first book, which was much more sort of isolated and about me and my ideas. How how does this also change? I mentioned uh, with you being the co-founder of uh, Contently, uh, how did that doing this book impact that business and and your mindset uh, with that company? So I workshopped a lot of the, uh, you know, the research that I was learning, a lot of the conclusions that I was coming to, I workshopped those at my company. You know, I, I would get up and do these lunch talks where I would, you know, kind of present in oral form the things that I was studying and learning and get feedback. And uh, that was a big part of it. And, but there's, you know, the most rewarding thing, I think, is we, we had something special going on at, 
at the company. And part of it was this band of misfits thing and, and that we were actually were pretty good at debating. And that example was set by my partners and I. We were just good at that and not getting personal about things. And, uh, and so recognizing that was rewarding to start to see, hey, some of these things that I'm writing about that I'm learning are like we're doing naturally. And then there were some things that I was a little more horrified about, about the way that we were talking about culture fit and, and really sort of creating cult fit and the way that, you know, as we got bigger, we were like, well, we got to get serious about getting people who are the same as us, right. realizing, no, that's wrong. Actually, what's made this special is the fact that we're not the same. And so, you know, uh, I banned the word culture fit and, uh, and, you know, people now have to say culture ad and you can't say culture ad is a euphemism for culture fit. But even just that little bit primes you to think, to remember that, hey, what we're looking for is not someone when we're hiring, someone who reminds me of me someone who I get along with, but someone who's going to give me something that I don't have on my team. Right. It's also changed the questions we ask in hiring. We're much bigger about asking people for their stories. Right. So yeah. questions about times you've changed your mind in your life when it was hard, lessons you've learned, you know, what do you read, things like this that evoke stories about a human's journey that can help us to understand what different things are these people bringing? Because everyone can, and any smart person can answer the right questions in an interview. <laughs> right. But that's not the most important part anymore. We'll get that. What we want now is that addition to our team. So things like that have really, uh, have really come about because of this work. And you know, and I'm I'm keen on continuing, especially the stuff around intellectual humility, developing people so that uh, that we can let go of of being right and that we can make it safe to be yep. wrong. That's stuff that's ongoing. You know, the tactics for that, um, research on that is, is still budding, and, and we're doing some great things, but uh, but there's more that I'm excited to uh, to get to on that front. Shane, great book. Uh, thank you for giving us your time today, and we wish you all the best with it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. The book, again, is Dream Teams, Working Together Without Falling Apart. Shane Snow is the author. It's available in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.